Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. We continue our series through the Gospel of John with today's episode. The first two episodes, we've primarily dealt with backgrounds to John's gospel. We've asked questions such as, who wrote the fourth gospel? Or, why does John's account differ so much from the synoptics? But today, we leave the world of biblical backgrounds and actually enter into the gospel itself. We step over the threshold into John's gospel, and we find ourselves in the foyer of a great mansion where all the major themes are presented to us. Themes that will occur throughout the gospel, such as light, life, witness, truth, world, glory, the word, and and many more are packed into these first 18 verses. And, And no doubt the prologue of John's gospel has been held dear by Christians ever since the ink was drying on the papyrus. And when we think about the great passages of the New Testament, such as Romans 8 or Hebrews 11, certainly John 1 and many others come to mind. So listen in now to part three of our series on John's gospel, the prologue of John's gospel. So my two lectures later today, as mentioned, I'll walk us through the Cana cycle in John's gospel chapters two to four. But now for the rest of my time with you this morning, I would like for us to take a brief look at the prologue, which is of supreme importance in understanding where John is going in his gospel and how John's gospel is distinctive and unique. I can't stress the importance of John's prologue for understanding his gospel as a whole enough. As we'll see, the prologue gives us the lenses through which we can view John's entire presentation of Jesus in the remainder of the gospel. So to provide a framework for our study of John's prologue, here's a possible outline that shows that John most likely structured the prologue using a chiastic construction, A, B, C, B prime, and A prime. I mean, that adhered to the work of the very astute Johanna literary scholar, Alan Culpepper, in his article, The Pivot of John's Prologue. So A, the first portion would be the words activity in creation, verses 1 to 5. B, uh, second section, John's witness concerning the light. That's uh, John the Baptist, verses 6 through 8. Then the middle portion, uh, C, the incarnation of the word and the privilege of becoming God's children, verses 9 to 14. And then back, B prime, John's witness concerning the word's preeminence, verse 15. And finally, the bookend to the first five verses, verses 16 to 18, the final revelation brought by Jesus Christ. There are certain inclusios such as that the word is identified as God in the first and the last verse of the prologue. This could be a helpful outline as you teach or preach through the prologue. You could go through it in linear fashion, verse by verse, or you could start with verses 1 to 5, then go to the corresponding bookend, verses 16 to 18, as I mentioned. After this, you could cover verses 6 to 8 and 15 about John the Baptist, and conclude with the center of the prologue, verses 9 to 14, which deal with the incarnation of the Word and the privilege of becoming God's children by faith in Christ. Uh, John opens his gospel with the well-known words, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is an incredibly momentous declaration with its opening allusion to the first book in the Bible, the first verse in the book of Genesis. You can see right out of the gate why many believe that John has an exceedingly high Christology. What John is saying here at the very outset is that before Jesus was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, he preexisted eternally with God the Father. As a matter of fact, as John continues to develop in the verses that follow, it was through Jesus, the pre-incarnate word, that God spoke the created universe into being. What's more, not only is the pre-incarnate Jesus called the word and said to have been the agent of creation, he himself is identified as God, Greek Theos, on par with God the Father, the creator and Yahweh, God of Israel. It's impossible to overstate the impact that the opening words of John's prologue had made on the subsequent history of the church's doctrinal formulation of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and Christology in the early centuries of the Christian era. In many ways, we owe to John an immeasurable theological and Christological debt as he considerably deepened the presentation of Jesus as virgin-born, preexistent, and divine in the other synoptic gospels. This same preexistent word through whom God spoke creation into being, John argues, subsequently became flesh in Jesus, who pitched his tent among his people. Pitched his tent is the Greek word skinoo in verse 14. Our word skin is a derivative of this word. Um, And John and his fellow apostles perceived his glory. Still verse 14. The Greek word there is theaomai. Most English versions simply say they saw his glory, but theaomai is really a more specific word than the Greek word for simply seeing. It's a precursor, of course, of our word theater. So what John is saying, not just that he saw Jesus' glory, but that he perceived Jesus' glory in uh, especially his signs. The glory the apostles perceived in Jesus, uh, John continues to elaborate, is that of the one and only Son, the unique one-of-a-kind son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we see a reference to Jesus as the end-time manifestation of God's presence in the midst of his people in continuity with previous divine manifestations in the tabernacle and later the temple, which Scripture tells us was filled with God's glory in Solomon's time. I can't resist reading you this passage because it's so powerful. Second Chronicles chapter 7, the first three verses, where it says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord On the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, John tells us that in Jesus, God's glory had come to earth in all its fullness. And from this fullness, God's people had all received grace instead of grace. Not grace upon grace, as the ESV has it, I think, because the preposition is anti, which means instead of, not epi. 
uh, upon. John continues, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, verse 17. In other words, the law was good, but Jesus is better, so much better. Moses asked to see God's glory, but was told he would not be able to see God and live, Exodus 33. By contrast, John tells us in the last verse of the prologue that while no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, who eternally preexisted with God the Father, has made him known. He came to give a full account of God. The Greek word is exegeomai, whose paraphrase might be that Jesus has exegeted the Father, very thorough exegesis. In this way, John tells us that we should read the rest of the gospel as Jesus giving a full account of what God is like and to see both Jesus' works, especially his signs and his words, his discourses, as a manifestation of God's glory. Not just the transfiguration, by the way. Everything. As we'll see in my next lecture, when Jesus performs his first sign at the wedding at Cana, John concludes his account by saying there that, quote, his disciples saw his glory and they believed in him. And when later in the upper room, one of Jesus' followers, Philip, asked Jesus to show him the Father, Jesus asked almost as if Philip hurt his feelings by even asking the question, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In fact, John's entire sending Christology is encapsulated in the unity between Jesus the Word and God the Father, most likely due to Isaiah's influence, particularly his depiction of God's Word in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, which says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. But I've saved the best for last. If John's prologue is constructed in form of a chiasm, at the very center of the chiasm is not the incarnation. The word become flesh in Jesus as important as this affirmation is theologically and Christologically. Rather, the central affirmation in John's prologue is found in verse 12, where John writes, and I'm starting with verse 11 and then continue through verse 13. Um, he came to his own, yet his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The central affirmation, therefore, which has supreme relevance for all of humanity, 
is that to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to be reborn spiritually by God. As we'll see in my third lecture, Jesus develops this truth further in his conversation with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, in chapter 3. But John states this vital spiritual truth at the very outset of his gospel. If we believe in Jesus' name, we're given the right to become God's children. In Old Testament times, God's chosen people were the people of Israel. But now this privilege has been extended to anyone who believes in Jesus, John 3.16. Can anything be more important? When people later in John's gospel ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, John 6, 28 through 29. As always, Jesus' answer is simple and yet incredibly profound. People were looking for works they could accomplish for God. But Jesus said the only work of God, the only work God requires of any of us, is to believe in the one whom he has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe or not to believe, that's the question. So simple and yet so profound. That's one of the many things I love about John's gospel. He reduces everything to the central question with which each one of us is confronted. It's as if John had written his entire gospel as an answer to the question Jesus asked his disciples, as recorded in the other three gospels. Who do you say that I am? John's answer is given in his purpose statement at the end of his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.